thanks to Michael. Can I just say uh, before we start, it's been um, a real honor for me to be here. Um, I always find preaching stressful, and uh, if I have been a bit um, uh, caught up with myself, that's the reason why. I uh, find it hard to relax until the preaching's over, so you have about five minutes after the session today uh, where you'll get me in the normal form. Um, I have found um, this week really humbling. You know, I, I felt that um, in terms of Christian work, I'm a, a pygmy standing on the foot of giants, and I really, really have come uh, increasingly to appreciate the work that you're involved in and the work that you do and the sacrifices that you have made, and I feel very unworthy uh, to be preaching to you. It is an honor and a, a real privilege. A few years ago, I read in our local paper, um, the Be national paper, the Belfast Telegraph, about two women who had been arrested for brawling in the street after coming out of church, after attending a meeting during the week for prayer for Christian <coughs> unity. And uh, although we may be tempted to attribute that disruption to suspicions about their orthodoxy, we have got, if we are to be honest, uh, admit that um, unity among Christians and unity among Christian workers in particular is, has been fragile at best and non-existent at worst. And uh, that's why I want to turn your attention to Philippians uh, chapter 2, because Philippians chapter 2 is written in the context of potential division and disruption um, uh, in the church. He talks there in verses 1 to 4 of being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of the one mind. You know later that there were two women who were fighting and bickering in the church that were threatening to disrupt the harmony of the church. And and Paul writes this Christological hymn in response to that uh, potential division and disruption. John MacArthur calls it a Christological gem, a theological diamond that sparkles brighter than any other uh, in Scripture. And of course it is, and oceans of ink and forests of trees have been used as theologians have tried to plumb the depths of what Paul actually says here. But we must remember that his motive in writing this passage is not primarily theological, but ethical. In this model New Testament church, there were problems, there were divisions, and Paul writes this to correct that aberrant behavior your attitude, he says, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That in our personal relationships, we must follow his example. And the humility, as Michael indicated, that characterized him must characterize uh, us. We must follow him. He's our model. He's our, he's our pattern. Now, what I wanted to do is just to go through the hymn and pick out five characteristics that characterize Christ, that ought to characterize us. And first of all, I want you to notice that the servant of God must have an attitude that surrenders position for the people of God. 
Look at verse 6. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Here Paul uses two words to describe our Lord's pre-incarnate condition. Form, or nature as the NIV has it, and equality. Now Professor John Murray says that the first word, nature, uh, refers to the dignity of his person. It's who he was. And the second word reveals, uh, refers to the dignity of his uh, position, the position that he occupied before he came into the world. In classical Greek, the word form meant the sum of something's characteristics. So this pulpit is wooden. It has a reading desk. It has a microphone. It looks like a pulpit. It is a pulpit. Everything about it constitutes it as a, a pulpit. And Paul, in using this word form, is telling us that everything about the Lord Jesus Christ, his infinity, his majesty, his glory, his immortality, his mystery, his authority, his omnipotence, his holiness, everything about him constituted him as God. All that God was, he was. All that God is, he is. He was in the form of God. He was in very nature God. We might say in his essence, in his being, he was God. He possessed all the attributes that constitute God as God. That's, as Professor Murray says, is the dignity of his person. He was in the form of God. He was in very nature God. The second word, equality, refers to the dignity of his position. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. As God, he enjoyed all the trappings of royalty, glory, and divinity. He was worshipped and adored as God. The angels that encircled his throne cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we know from John chapter 12 and verse 41 that it was the Lord Jesus Christ that the angels beheld and ascribed uh, those characteristics of holiness to. And so because in terms of his station... Uh, and rightly so, because in terms of his position, in terms of his station, he was equal with God. So in terms of his form or nature, he was God. Now notice that doesn't change. Form doesn't change. But in terms of his position, he was equal with God. All the worship that God received, he received. But notice how verse 6 continues who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained, something to be held on to, something to be snatched after, something to be clung to. It's a strong word. It's a violent word. He did not hold on to it aggressively and forcefully, but he surrendered his equality, not his form, he surrendered his equality for a greater purpose. One scholar, R.W. Hoover, has done a lot of research into this word grasp in the Greek language. It's a very rare word. It's only found here in the New Testament. It's never found in the Septuagint and very rarely in classical Greek. But Hoover has shown wherever this word is used, it refers to something present and already at one's disposal. So it's not that he took what didn't belong to him, as indicated by the authorized version when it uses the word robbery, 
but rather he did not exploit his position, hold on to his position, retain his position for personal benefit, but rather he surrendered it for the sake of others. He didn't retain to it uh, like a child holds a toy and says, it's mine, it's mine. He let that equality go. What a contrast with Adam. He wanted to be equal with God, and he reached up to grasp what didn't belong to him. Jesus was equal with God, and he reached down to us. What a contrast with Satan. He wanted to be equal with God too, and he tried to seize from God what was not rightfully his. Jesus, although he was equal with God, nevertheless let that equality go. You see the point that Paul is making? Jesus willingly, magnanimously, and humbly surrendered his position for the sake of others. He surrendered what was rightfully his. The adoration of of all of the hosts of heaven. And came into our world to save all those that the Father had given him in the eternal covenant of redemption. And in order to do that, he didn't grasp and hold on to his position. He didn't clean his position. He let his position go. He didn't stand on his dignity. He didn't insist on his rights, but he surrendered those rights for the sake of the people of God. Now, what a model that is for us in ministry. We live in a generation where people are obsessed with their identity, their rights, their position, their influence. This is mine. This is what I deserve. This is what I desire. And so much conflict comes down to this. People insisting on what is rightfully theirs or at least what they perceive to be rightfully theirs. It's one of the major reasons for wars between nations, divisions within communities, for conflict within families, and strife between individuals. This is mine, no surrender, not an inch. And Christian people are not immune from the spirit of the age. Don't be like that, says Paul. In your relationship with one another, and in your relationship with the church, remember the Lord Jesus Christ as your example. He surrendered his rights for the sake of the people of God. Do not have the right to opinion? Yes, you do. Do I not have the right to express myself? Yes, you do. Do I not have the right to tell it as it is? Yes, I do. Do I not have the right to be publicly thanked and and publicly uh, acknowledged? Yes, you do. Do I not have the right to expect my feelings and my sensitivities to be taken into account? Yes, you do. Do, not, do I not have the right to expect encouragement from others, particularly my own church? Yes, you do. But remember, Paul says, Jesus surrendered his rights for the sake of the people of God. You see that wonderfully illustrated in the life of Paul. Do I not have the right to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Yes, I do. But if By what I eat, I cause other people to stumble. I will never eat meat again. He surrendered his rights for the people of God. 1 Corinthians 9, do I not have the right to a salary? Do I not have the right to take along a believing wife? Do I not have the right to food and drink? Yes, I do. But he surrendered those rights for the sake of the people of God. And it was in Christ that he saw this principle at work that 
He, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that's the kind of attitude that we need when it comes to Christian ministry, an attitude uh, that surrenders rights for the sake of the people of God. Secondly, in Christ, we see an attitude that serves others in the cause of God. But made him, verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Here's an amazing thing. The one who was in very nature God, the one who was equal with God, made himself nothing. Now, the authorized version follows the rendering of the Geneva Bible and Cranmer, all who got it from Tyndale, who translated, made himself of no reputation. But literally, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. Now, it's that Greek word that gives rise to a heresy in the early church known as the canonic theory, where Christ in the incarnation somehow divested himself of the attributes of deity and so in some way was less than God. And so B.B. Warfield calls the literal translation, which incidentally the ESV follows, he calls the literal translation a mistranslation because it gives the impression that Christ was less than God in some way, that the attributes of God are detachable, that somehow he can lay aside certain attributes and still be God. Don Carson says, an animal that waddles like a duck, has feathers like a duck, has a beak like a duck, has webbed feet like a duck, is a duck. If you take any of those things away, whatever you're left with, it's not a duck. And if you take any of the attributes of deity away from the Lord Jesus, it's hard to see in how any meaningful way he could claim to be God. Well, what does Paul mean then when he says he emptied himself? Well, John Murray, expanding on what Athanasius wrote in the 4th century, said this, The Son of God became in time what he eternally was not. He did not cease to be what he eternally was, but he began to be what he eternally was not. Let me repeat that. The Son of God became in time what he eternally was not. He did not cease to be what he eternally was, but he began to be what he was not. In other words, his humiliation was not in his leaving aside, but in his taking to. John Murray uh, refers to it in terms of mathematics, that there was nothing subtracted from him in terms of deity, but our humanity was added to him. He took the nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. His divine attributes were not taken from him, but our humanity was added to him. Alec Mateer says, the question is not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself? So the theology of the incarnation is not a theology of subtraction, that somehow something of his divinity was taken away, but it's a theology of addition that our humanity was added to him. Now this is staggering. The word there for servant is the Greek word doulos, slave. Now a slave owned nothing, not even the clothes on his back. 
Everything that he had belonged to his master. And when Jesus came into our world, he was not only made in human likeness, but he took the very form of a slave. He had nothing, oh, nothing. No house, no land, no gold, no animals. He had no business or bank account. He borrowed a stable to be born in. He borrowed a boat to preach from. He borrowed a donkey to ride on. He borrowed a room to celebrate the Lord's Supper in. And he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. But that's not the only point Paul is making when he describes him as a slave. It's not just his poverty, but it's posture, his posture. That the Lord Jesus Christ came into our world and identified with our humanity in order that he might serve. Remember the words in Matthew 20, 28, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. The last supper, Jesus said to his disciples, who's who's the greatest? The one who sits at the table or the one who serves the table? Well, in our thinking and logic, it's the one who sits at the table and is being served. That's how people measure greatness, how many serve them. But Jesus adds, I am among you as one who serves. That true greatness is to be measured not in how many serve us, but our service of others. Then you have that wonderful illustration of his servanthood and the washing of the disciples' feet. They come to the upper room and the basin's there, the towel's there, the water's there, but there's no servant there. And all of the disciples are standing, well, rather, sitting on their dignity with their shamefully dirty feet stretching out behind them as they recline at the table. And the meal is in progress and there's tension in the air because of the... um, those feet and their refusal to take the subordinate position. And then to their utter amazement, our Lord gets up. He divests himself of his robe. He wraps a towel around his uh, waist and he washes their feet. And in that breathless silence, all they can hear is the friction of the towel and the splash of the water as the master moves from disciple to disciple, washing the feet of his arrogant creatures. He adopts the posture of the slave and serves the creatures of his creation. And we as servants of Christ are to have that same servant-like attitude. And if we do, we will not hesitate to adopt that posture in serving others. We so often are like the disciples, preoccupied with ourselves, We want to stand on our dignity. We don't want to to, um, uh, do anything that we consider beneath us. It all comes down to basin theology. Yesterday we had basket theology. This is basin theology. Either like Pilate, you wash your hands of others and their needs, or you use that basin to wash their feet. Do you see yourself as a servant of the people of God? Prepared to do the menial and the degrading for the sake of other people. Steve was telling us yesterday about T.C. Hammond who left Ireland to go to um, Australia. And in the early days of Moore College, when things were financially um, tight, 
they decided to uh, dismiss the caretaker and divide the chores up among the students. And so they had lists that you could uh, sign up, you know, washing the floors, um, cleaning the windows, doing the dishes, serving the meals. And every chore was, was taken, but the toilets, nobody wanted to wash the toilets. But the toilets were always clean, and nobody knew how they were clean until one of the students came in early on one occasion and found T.C. Hammond in rubber gloves on his hands and knees washing the toilets. Do you have that servant-like attitude? So often we see the churches existing to facilitate us and serve us. To paraphrase the words of John F. Kennedy, ask not what your church can do for you but ask what you can do for your church. So in Christian ministry, then, we should have the same attitude of Christ Jesus, an attitude that surrenders position for the people of God, an attitude that serves others in the cause of God. And then thirdly, an attitude that is submissively obedient to the will of God. Look at verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, here's an amazing thing. The incarnation is a story that is down, down, down. It's startling enough that the Lord of glory should be made in human likeness and find an appearance as a man, that the creator should enter the creation in the form of one of the creatures that he had created. Spurgeon says, he who made man became man. It's incredible. It's unthinkable. It's wonderful. Veiled in flesh, the God had seen. Heal the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. It's, it's staggering. Packer says the more you think about it, the more amazing it becomes. Our God contracted to a span. Incomprehensibly made man. It was one great giant step from the glory and equality of heaven to the poverty and depravity of this world. But that wasn't an end to it. It's still down, down, down. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Lord Jesus suffers and dies. And what a death he dies. He dies the death of a cross. He didn't die of old age. He didn't die of disease. He didn't die by accident. He died deliberately and cruelly on a cross. The Lord of glory, the king of the angels, the the object of the adoration of the angelic hosts of heaven was cruelly and mercilessly crucified by the creatures of his own creation. I was reading of a Brazilian missionary who was walking through the marketplace and they came across a stall that was um, selling religious trinkets, spiritual haberdashery. And they had a, they had a sign uh, on the market stall which said, Cheap Crosses. Well, the cross was anything but cheap. The Romans had a saying that he who dies by crucifixion dies a thousand deaths. It was a punishment reserved for slaves and insurrectionists and was considered too barbaric for non-Roman citizens. Humanity could not have devised a more degrading and loathsome experience than crucifixion. He became a shame and a scandal for us. But I suppose those physical sufferings 
were minuscule in comparison to the spiritual sufferings that he endured when he who knew no sin was made sin for us. When God the Father took the eternal wrath of all the people of God and laid it on his son whom he loved, who at the height of his agony cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was down, down from the glory of heaven, down to his role of a servant, down to his appearance as man, down to his experience in death, and down to death on a cross. But what I, what I want you to notice is that word obedient. And he became obedient to death. Do you see that? Obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, in our English versions, apart from the ESV, you get the impression that somehow he obeyed death. But the force of the original is that he became obedient right up to and including death itself. In other words, he didn't draw back from death. He willingly embraced death as part and parcel of the Father's will for him. His death, unlike any other death, was voluntary. He said in John 10 and 18, No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. He voluntarily lays down his life in an act of obedience to the will of the Father. He didn't draw back from death, but he accepted death as part and parcel of the will of God for him. We were reminded on the first night of the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, May this cup pass from me. But he added, Nevertheless, not what I will, but your will be done. Although everything in his humanity recoiled from the cross, he submitted to the cross because the cross was the will of God for him. He became obedient to death. He willingly surrendered himself to all the suffering associated with the cross because that was God's will. And once again, that's the attitude that must be cultivated in the authentic servant of Christ. An attitude that sees our humiliation, our rejection, our mistreatment, our suffering, the things that are so often associated with Christian ministry as part and parcel of God's plan for us. So that just like the Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to the will of God, no matter how difficult the will of God is. So often we wriggle and squirm, we head out, lash out, we moan and complain about the treatment we receive from others. Rather than seeing all of those things uh, falling into the realm of the providence of God and humbly submitting ourselves to them. If we truly believe that God is working all things after the counsel of his own will and that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass... Can we not submit to his will when it comes to personal loss and personal rejection? Robert Murray McShane used to say that the average Christian doesn't take enough notice of providence. And what is true of the average Christian is true of the average Christian worker. One of the hardest places to bow to the sovereignty of God is in Christian ministry. When we're overlooked, when we're taken for granted, when we are rejected, when we are criticized, when we are scandalized, when we're crucified. 
I don't think I could have uh, survived in Christian ministry if I didn't believe in the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. As one of the Puritans said, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is a soft pillow on which you can lay a weary head. A friend of mine once said, you know, he says, I can't help getting depressed. He says, when I look at the state of the church, when I look at the state of the world, when I look at the state of my own heart, he says, I get depressed. Listen, God is sovereign. God is in control. He is working all things after the counsel of his own will. Will he not perfect that which concerns you? If he is in control of the very fall of a sparrow from the tree, is he not in control of the finer details of your life? Can we not become obedient to providence? Can we not bow to providence? Can we not submit to providence when that providence even is dark and mysterious? Can we not say with the Lord Jesus, not my will but thy will be done? He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So the servant of Christ must have the, an attitude that surrenders position for the people of God, an attitude that serves others in the cause of God, an attitude that is submissively obedient to the will of God, and then fourthly, an attitude that patiently waits for the vindication of God in verses uh, 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here we read of the exaltation of Christ, and it's a great exaltation. And that exaltation is the very antithesis of his humiliation. Professor Philson of the Free Church College in Edinburgh used to say, wherever you get a lock or lake at the foot of a mountain, he says... They, they, I think it's a Scottish myth, but anyway, wherever you find a lock at the foot of the mountain, that the mountain is as high as the lock is as deep. And it's only right and proper that the one who has gone down to death on a cross now rises to a position of glory. The word exalted there in verse 9 is the Greek word for exalted with the prefix hyper before it. And I, I think it's a pity that none of our versions translated in that way. Therefore, God hyper-exalted him. We have mini-markets, we have markets, we have supermarkets, but on the continent they have hyper-markets. And they're bigger and better and grander than any other kind of market. And we're told that God has hyper-exalted Christ to a position that is better and above everyone and everything else. Notice that he is given the name that is above every name. What is the name that is above every name? Well, the name that is above every name is the covenant name for God, Yahweh or Jehovah. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord must be understood in the way it's used to translate on at least 6,000 occasions the covenant name Yahweh in the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Well, first of all, because of the background. Paul here is quoting from Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45 is one of the most forthright and forceful statements of God's sovereignty in all of the Bible. Four times in Isaiah 45, God declares his absolute sovereignty. 
Three times he says, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Once he says, I am God, and there is no other. And in that last declaration, God calls and says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. And before me, every knee will bow, and every tongue will swear allegiance. So the background demands that Lord here is used, translated as, as Yahweh, used as Yahweh. The context, too, notice the presence of the definite article, their name that is above every name. That's the way the name um, Yahweh was written in rabbinical writings. For fear of violating the third commandment, they wouldn't actually write the name Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah. They wouldn't write it. And so they would refer to it as the name, the name that I dare not speak, the, the main name that I dare not uh, mention the name that is above every name. So the background and con- uh, context demands that we understand Lord here as Yahweh. For that name and that name only is the name that is above heaven and earth. And here we have everyone in heaven and on earth, even those under the earth, confessing that Jesus is Yahweh. During his earthly ministry, his true identity was concealed. But on that day, it will be revealed. And he will receive what is rightfully his, the praise of every living creature. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. He has gone down, down, down. And now he goes up, up, up. And he is given the highest place that heaven affords. And that he is given the name that is above every name. Men had done their worst to him. They had ridiculed him. They had rejected him. They had crucified him. But God raised him. God raised him. Notice that it was God the Father that raised him. It was God the Father who authenticated the work of Christ by raising him from the dead and exalting him to the highest place. That was Peter's great declaration on the day of Pentecost. You, with the help of wicked hands, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead and later says exalted him to his right hand. Jesus, it seems, entrusted the work of exaltation and vindication to his father. Remember how in John 17 he prays, and now, Father, glorify me in the presence with the glory I had before the world began. He was prepared to leave his ultimate vindication, his resurrection, his exaltation to the Father. Now, that's such an important principle. In verse 8, we read, he humbled himself. And in verse 9, therefore, therefore, a crucial word in the text, therefore God highly exalted him. That's God's way. That's God's pattern. We humble ourselves and he exalts us. Four times in the New Testament you read, for whoever humbles himself will be exalted, and for whoever exalts himself, sorry, will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. That if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, God will exalt you. James puts it like this. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will lift you up. 
That's a, that's a principle. Humble yourselves. And it's God who does the exalting. Leave your exaltation, your vindication, your justification to God. It's God who raises up. We don't have to be constantly defending our position, fighting our corner, and insisting on our rights. All we need to do is walk humbly with our God and wait for his vindication. That's what Christ did, and that's what we need to do. And that's tremendously liberating. We don't have to be constantly defending ourselves or justifying ourselves. We just leave it to God. Can we not trust him to do that for us? Can we not wait for him to do that for us? Can we not leave him to do that for us? Leave it with him to do that for us? Maybe in this world and it may be in the world to come. But it is God who ultimately exalts. I love that story of the, the missionary who, missionary couple who were coming home from Africa after a lifetime of service. And they were on the sh- uh, same ship as Teddy Roosevelt who had been out um, on a big game hunt in Africa, shooting elephants. And uh, when they shipped docked in New York, there was, um, there was a band waiting, uh, streamers. Uh, they, they were placards, a crowd there to welcome them, uh, to welcome Teddy Roosevelt. But the church had forgotten that the missionaries were coming home. And there was nobody there to welcome them. And they got off the ship, uh, amidst this fanfare, got into a taxi and, and went to a hotel. And as the wife looked over to her husband, she noticed tears coming down his cheeks. And she says, what's the matter? And she says, well, or he says, it just doesn't seem right. There's Teddy Roosevelt shooting elephant, elephants in Africa, and we have devoted 40 years to serving the Lord in Africa. And when we come home, there's nobody to welcome us. And she reached over and she put her hand on his leg and said, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. So to survive in Christian ministry, we need an attitude that surrenders position for the people of God, an attitude that serves others in the cause of God, an attitude that is submissively obedient to the will of God, an attitude that patiently waits for the vindication of God, and lastly, an attitude that is motivated by the glory of God. Just notice the last line there in verse 11. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory, to the glory of God the Father. All of Christ's work, both in his humiliation and his exaltation, was for the glory of the Father. As I said, I believe that the greatest uninspired statement ever written in the world is the first answer to the first question in the shorter catechism. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And In that statement, Scripture is wonderfully summarized. Paul tells the Ephesians that we have been chosen by the Father, redeemed by the Son, sealed by the Spirit for the praise of his glory. We are to live and work and serve for the glory of God. Whatever you do, Paul says, do all for the glory of God. And Paul tells us here in Philippians 2 that the humiliation that led to the exaltation of Christ brought glory to God the Father. And if by our humiliation and our rejection, even our crucifixion, glory is brought to the Father through our ministry, is that not a price worth paying? If taking second place, if surrendering our rights, 
if going the extra mile, if zipping our lip, if controlling our temper, if, if forgiving uh, again and again, if by that glory is brought to God so that his kingdom is extended, his church is united, his people are encouraged, his influence is cre- pre- uh, increased, and his gospel is preached throughout the world, is that not a price worth paying and a position worth adopting? The glory of God ought to be all important to us. And that's the mark of the true servant of God. He's more interested in God's glory than his own glory. John Calvin says the interest of the faithful is always annexed to the glory of God. A concern for the glory of God, that must be the mainspring of our ministry, the the chief motivation for our ministry. I was reading in um, an Anglican magazine, uh, the briefing, an evangelical Anglican magazine, about a a rather angular Anglican. He was very outspoken. I think I know who it was, but I'm not going to reveal that in case it's not true. But this rather angular Anglican, and Anglican ministers can get away with uh, things that nonconformists can't. But anyways, he was a very outspoken. This young person came to him in the church and says, I don't like this church anymore. Um, nobody invites me for lunch. I don't like the worship in this church. I, I, I don't like the pre- I can't understand the preaching in this church. Uh, I'm thinking of leaving. And the minister just turned to him and said, it's not about you, stupid. <laughs> now, I'd love to say that, but I wouldn't have the courage to say <laughs> he says, He says, it's not about you, stupid. My church doesn't care for me enough not about you stupid my church doesn't appreciate me it's not about you stupid the people aren't responding to my ministry it's it's not about you stupid my church doesn't understand the pressure i face on the field it's not about you stupid my church doesn't pray for me enough i don't get enough profile it's not about you stupid sola dea gloria all for the glory of god If we are to have the same mind as that of Christ Jesus, the glory of God must be, should be, must be our chief motivation to survive in Christian ministry. We need the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. An attitude that surrenders position for the people of God. An attitude that serves others in the cause of God. An attitude that is submissively obedient to the will of God. An attitude that patiently waits for the vindication of God. An attitude that is motivated by the glory of God. And it seems to me, when when I look back over my ministry to those times that I felt like giving up and throwing in the towel, it was because I had lost sight of that model for ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.